Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton of Geopolitical Economy Report, and this is a presentation that I gave as part of a video panel that was titled, Will There Be a War in the Taiwan Strait? This was a, a digital conference organized by the International Manifesto Group, an excellent organization. And in the description below, I will link to the full video with the other panelists. But without further ado, these were my remarks. And then after, I also have some video and audio of the Q&A session in which I responded to some questions. The topic for discussion today is whether or not there's going to be a war over Taiwan. Unfortunately, I do think there will be some kind of violent conflict. We all don't want a war to happen, but if we listen to the extremely aggressive rhetoric from the U.S. government and particularly the U.S. military, they have made it clear that they want to wage war over Taiwan. And I'm going to start today looking at a comment, a very aggressive and irresponsible comment made just recently by a U.S. general. This was published in late January. A top U.S. general said that he expects the U.S. military will wage war with China as soon as 2025. It's a four-star U.S. Air Force General, Mike Minahan. He said in a memo that is an internal memo that my gut tells me we will fight in 2025. And he also instructed his soldiers that they need to learn how to train to kill people as effectively as possible. And of, of course, the Pentagon intentionally downplayed the severity of this threat. You could say it's part of maybe the madman strategy. It was a controlled leaked. But if you look at the statements officially made by Pentagon leadership, they don't inspire much more confidence. We should look at the national defense strategy that was published by the Pentagon this October. The Wall Street Journal published, it, uh, published an article summarizing it saying, US defense strategy casts China as greatest danger to American security. And this is significant because in 2018, the Pentagon published its new national defense strategy that for the first time changed the transition from the so-called war on terror, in which the U.S. claimed that non-state so-called terrorism was the top threat to U.S. national security. They transitioned to saying that, that so-called great power competition is the main threat to U.S. national security. That was under Secretary of Defense James Mattis, now under Lloyd Austin. They have further revised it and said China specifically is the top threat. And the Wall Street Journal says that very clearly. Um, Lloyd Austin wrote, quote, the People's Republic of China remains our most consequential strategic competitor for the coming decades. And the Wall Street Journal noted that this national defense strategy came just after the White House released its own national security strategy, which was very similar and it said that China is the main threat, although they use the term competitor. And they did say that Russia, the defense strategy in the Pentagon did say that Russia is an acute threat, but they said that in the medium to the long term, China is the biggest so-called threat. And if we look at the actions that the Pentagon has been taking, we can see that it is preparing for some kind of violent conflict. Nikkei published an important article, this is the Japanese newspaper, back in 2021 that unfortunately did not get much attention, but it is quite shocking. And that is that the U.S. military plans on spending $27 billion within the next five years to put an offensive missile network on the first island chain. They said that this was part of the proposal that U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, that's the U.S. military's command, sent 
to Congress, and it includes the authorization of $27.4 billion to be spent in the Indo-Pacific theater. And if you look here, I mean, for people who don't know, I'm sure most people here do, but the first island chain includes Japan, uh, the Philippines, and of course, Taiwan, which is part of the People's Republic of China, but I'll come back to that in a second. The US military and NATO have said very clearly they want to turn Taiwan into what they call a prickly porcupine. And I'll talk about that strategy in a second. But um, the strategy is to put these $27 billion worth of offensive missiles networks in Japan, especially Okinawa, also the Philippines. And, and the Philippines plays a key role in this as well. I'll come, I'll come back to that because the US just signed an agreement with the Philippines to provide access to four new military bases. I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment here. But um, I should note that the RAND Corporation, which is the, the main Pentagon think tank, they did publish a report uh, uh, over a year ago complaining that they were having difficulty getting the governments in certain countries in the Pacific to agree to hosting these missile networks. Specifically, they named Japan, South Korea, and the Philippines. But the recent change of governments in all three of those countries has made it look like the US may get them to agree to host these missile networks, especially Fumio Kishida, the new Japanese leader, just took a trip to Washington and met with President Biden, and they agreed to more military cooperation. Japan is militarizing now at the highest level it has since World War II. And then I mentioned, you know, the Philippines signed this new military agreement, and also South Korea's new leader is, is taking a, a harder line against China as well. So this plays into another shocking report that was published in the Financial Times on January 8th. I mean, many of these reports are very recent, and we can see this aggressive posturing being taken by Washington in a short period of time. This article is titled, U.S. Military Deepens Ties with Japan and Philippines to Prepare for So-Called China Threat. But it emphasizes, again, the, the role that Japan is playing in these war preparations and how the Japanese uh, so-called defense forces are really heavily militarizing. And it quotes a lieutenant general from the U.S. Marines named James Bierman, who said that the U.S. and the Japanese militaries have, quote, seen exponential increases just over the last year. So it shows that Kishida is taking a more aggressive line. And they said that they're specifically emulating the groundwork that has enabled Western countries to support Ukraine in the proxy war against Russia. That's an important point that I'm going to come back to in a moment here. And I mentioned the the importance in addition to Japan, but uh, the an import the importance of the Philippines. And the BBC put this very clearly in a report where they boasted, you know, that you could say that the the this British state media is exaggerating a little bit, of course, but they did boast, quote, US secures deal on a basis to complete arc around China. Not mincing words, it's clear that this is about surrounding China with hostile military forces. And this BBC report said, the way they put it, the U.S. has secured access to four additional military bases in the Philippines. And they say Washington has stitched the gap in the arc of U.S. alliances stretching from South Korea and Japan in the north down to Australia in the south. The missing link had been the Philippines. And, you know, the new president of the Philippines, Bangmang Marcos, who, of course, is the son of the former U.S.-backed dictator of the Philippines, Marcos, who had been a key ally in the first Cold War, it 
that China had been trying to work diplomatically to maintain positive relations with Bangmang Marcos. He had made comments suggesting that he wasn't going to take an aggressive line against China. It does seem that he is trying to balance the U.S. and China and doing what's in Philipp the Philippines' own national interests. But the fact that he allowed the U.S. to access four new bases in the Philippines is a concerning sign that you know, he may go along with this U.S. strategy, not only to encircle China, but essentially to wage war on China. And finally, I mean, when I say that the U.S. is preparing to wage war on China, of course, I hope it doesn't do so. I hope that there can be possibilities met to prevent it. But I'm simply looking at what the U.S. ruling class itself is saying. And again, maybe this is all part of a sophisticated psychological warfare strategy, going back, you know, to Richard Nixon, they called it the madman strategy. Potentially, this is all an attempt to try to threaten China, to try to bring about some kind of diplomacy that, I mean, of course, China has always been the, the one willing to engage in diplomatic talks. It's the U.S. that opposes diplomacy. But this brings me to the, the last uh, series of articles that I want to look at today, which was published by Foreign Policy, which makes it clear. I mean, this is the, this is the voice of the political class in Washington, Foreign Policy magazine. And the way they put it, they say that this is lessons, they're discussing lessons for the next war. And they have 12 experts, this was published in January, 12 experts, including former top US officials, NATO officials, and others, discussing their strategy for waging war with China in order to support secessionism, separatism in Taiwan. And when they say lessons for the next war, they're saying lessons from the current war, which is the proxy war against Russia in Ukraine, and applying those lessons for US war against China over Taiwan. And some of the people who contributed to this include um, Andres Fogh Rasmussen, who's the former NATO Secretary General in the Obama era. It also includes um, David Petraeus, the former top US general who oversaw the war strategy and, and, and counterinsurgency strategy in Afghanistan. And also, and of course, David Petraeus was CIA director. And Anne-Marie Slaughter, the aptly named neoconservative a former State Department official under Obama who has never seen a war she didn't like. So they begin this series making very clear that they're preparing for war. And they begin it, they open it with a bang with the former NATO Secretary General, Anders Fogris Musin, who talks about the importance of turning Taiwan into a bristling porcupine. And he makes a few main points in this article. And, and this is the way that the US ruling class is discussing how to, to wage a war over strategy to support separatism in Taiwan. One, they talk about the learning the parallels between the proxy war in Ukraine and the imperialist war over Taiwan. And they say, you know, he uses this ridiculous rhetoric of the so-called free world, but he taught he stresses the importance of learning lessons from the war in Ukraine. And he said that one, that Taiwan needs to have a technological superiority. And he argues that in the war the proxy war over Ukraine, the way that Ukraine has been able to resist thus far, although he exaggerates the extent to which Ukraine has been resisting, he does say that it's been able to do that largely because of superior Western-made weapons. So he argues that the U.S. needs to provide Taiwan with as many advanced uh, armaments and missile systems as possible. And he says that, of course, part of this is also the economic warfare, which I'll come back to in a second. Is this, it's crucially it's crucial that the U.S. Uh, provides the most advanced microchips and machinery and prevents China 
from having access to that technology. And that explains the U.S. strategy that Biden White, uh, Biden administration applying very aggressive sanctions against China, preventing the export to China of uh, advanced microchips, quantum computing technology. And uh, he also talks about China's reliance on global supply chains. And he talks about the importance of bringing in allies, specifically he names South Korea and Japan. And um, he notes that China is more dependent on global supply chains than Russia had been, largely because Russia since 2014 has been trying to make its economy sanctions proof. So he talks about one of the, the areas of China's vulnerabil vulnerabilities being the supply chain. And then he says, again, weapons are what counts. Sanctions are important, but the U.S. needs to turn Taiwan into a porcupine bristling with armaments. So this is the military strategy. And then the second article in the series is about the economic warfare strategy. And it's by a, a researcher at this neoconservative think tank, the International Institute for Strategic Studies, which is funded by Western governments and the weapons industry. And, and her name is uh, Maria Shagina. And she talks about the strategies for economic warfare against China. And we're seeing that exactly. And again, this explains the Biden strategy for its economic warfare against China. Many people ask, why is Biden going so aggressively against the China, Chinese sex, tech sector, especially considering that you know China has already made advancements in the past few months after Biden imposed these sanctions. China has already made advancements in uh, chip technology, but they make it clear that the strategy is that they know China can make up for this technology, but they're imposing these sanctions now because this might give them two or three years to prepare for war over Taiwan. And then maybe by you know four or five years, China will have completely caught up and probably be even more advanced in its technological sector. So, so this, ar this article, again, in Foreign Policy Magazine argues the importance of uh, sanctions and economic, technological, and military advantages over both Russia and China she also stresses the point that unlike Russia, China is more vulnerable because of how deeply embedded it is in the global economy and supply chains. And she argues that cutting ties with China could turn into the turn into the economic version of nuclear war, mutually assured destruction. So instead, the West needs to identify choke points and decreasing vulnerabilities that China has. And they also talk about the importance of a broad coalition. And she says that it was very important to freeze the $300 billion in foreign exchange reserves that was held by the Russian, Russian bank. And part of that was also, the part of the goal is also to cut off Russia's access to Western technology. So they're learning from those same strategies they use against Russia to try to think about how they could implement it against China, although she acknowledges that this would be significantly more difficult against China, considering it has the world's largest economy measured according to purchasing power parity. So it's about stifling. She says very clearly, the goal is to stifle China's ability to advance its capabilities in, in emerging technologies. She speaks openly of the West's weaponization of finance, saying clearly that these international financial institutions are weapons. They're not independent. And she notes that China is itself conscience, conscious of its weakest spot, its high reliance on dollars, and other Western currencies for international trade and foreign reserves. And this brings us to why China has been trying to reduce its exposure to dollars 
trying to decrease its holdings of U.S. Treasury securities. And she refers to this as China's financial decoupling. She speaks about the digitalization of the yuan and China's attempt to reduce dollar dependency. And she says that Western financial sanctions have given Chinese efforts a boost in their attempt to increase the inter internationalization of the yuan and to sanction-proof the economy of China and its allies. So they understand that this is a, a race for time. I mean, that's why I think this general said that the U.S. is potentially going to be at war over Taiwan by 2025, because they understand that China does have these, these weaknesses in terms of short-term technological weaknesses and short-term uh, reliance on the U.S. dollar. So that's, I think they've, a lot of members of the U.S. ruling class in Washington have made the assessment that they need to strike sooner rather than later before China can develop, develop its tech sector sufficiently to be independent and before it can sufficiently develop new financial architecture that will weaken its dependence on the U.S. dollar. And I'm not going to go through the other articles because there's many. I'll just briefly mention that David Petraeus himself, you know, the uh, leader of the former CIA director, military leader who was a key strategist for counterinsurgency. I mean, he says clearly that the U.S. goal is to defend the U.S.-led world order. I mean, he says it very clearly. It's not about democracy. It's not about human rights. He doesn't even say the rules-based order. He says the U.S.-led world order. And he, he complains that China, Russia, and Iran are trying to keep the United States out of their respective backyards. I mean, again, we see this 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 is the ideology of the political of the, the military class in Washington, which is full spectrum dominance, the Wolfowitz doctrine, unipolar hegemony of the entire planet. And he talks specifically about the strategy of anti-access aerial area denial A2 D, A2 AD and how it was applied with the proxy war in uh in Ukraine against Russia. And he says that the Western Pacific is very different from Russia, for, excuse me, from Ukraine. It's predominantly maritime, encompassing vastly greater distances, and contested by combatants with far more technologically advanced capabilities. So he argues that China is more advanced than Russia's military, although they are strategic partners and working together closely. And he's, and then here, just this final word I'll say is that David Petraeus argued that in the event of conflict, that is war over Taiwan, no one will come to the rescue of an understocked U.S. military that runs out of munition. So he says that Russia's invasion has been of Ukraine has been an invaluable wake-up call for a new arms race, essentially. He says that, that Pentagon planners and congressional appropriators need to provide the defense in industry with large and large sums of money to provide the ability to, to maintain sustained warfare in a new era of great power competition. So I'll end there. I mean, um, again, the, the topic to, to, to the question we were analyzing today is whether or not there's going to be a war over Taiwan. I mean, again, this could all be part of a sophisticated psychological war that the US is waging, but I think you have to conclude if you study what the ruling class is saying very clearly, they are preparing for war with China in order to support separatism in Taiwan and they're preparing to do it in the short term. Those were the remarks that I gave at the panel titled, Will There Be a War in the Taiwan Strait? Organized by the International Manifesto Group. I have a link to the full panel event in the description below. And here I'm gonna include 
as well my response to some of the questions in the Q&A session and I expand my analysis. There are two questions here. I'll briefly respond to both of them. Why do countries so often act against their own economic interests? I mean, because of imperialism and frankly, because of uh, the U.S. aggression against its own allies. I mean, the U.S. blew up Germany's Nord Stream pipelines with Russia. We now have report basically proving that from Seymour Hirsch, one of the world's most respected investigative journalists. And Germany is one of the U.S.'s closest so-called allies. It reminds me of Henry Kissinger's infamous quote that the U.S. has no permanent friends, only interests. And, and unfortunately, that's why these countries so often act against their own economic interests. In terms of whether or not I truly think there will be war, well, it depends how you define war. If you mean conventional military war between the U.S. and China, unfortunately, I do think it's a very real possibility, but it depends on a few factors. Um, first of all, the economic war has already begun. The information war has been going on for years. The hybrid war has already begun. But I do think that there are a few ways that it could be stopped. I mean, a mass movement, a re reinvigoration of the anti-war movement bigger than it was in the lead up to the Iraq war. I mean, those are all necessary things. These are not inevitable facts, uh, you know, inevitable developments in history that we can never have any influence on. But I think also within the island with, of Taiwan, there are several developments that, that could potentially be hurdles for the U.S. war drive. One, the KMT just won the, the regional elections last year, and there's a new election coming up next year. And it's likely that the KMT will win for leadership of Taiwan. And if they do win, then it seems like they'll probably be less... Uh, I mean, I don't want to say necessarily that they would be strong enough to resist the U.S. war drive, but they would be less susceptible to that U.S. pressure than the current leadership. Um, but I also think that if you listen to what a lot of people in Washington are saying and read what they say carefully, and I'm not talking about just politicians, I'm talking about Pentagon leadership, they've made the assessment that if they're going to strike against China, they need to do it in the short term. Now, not everyone in the US political class is, is completely on board with that. There are divisions within the ruling class as always, but there does seem to be a pretty big consensus that with this proxy war against Russia now, and with uh, China, the temporary uh, Western lead over China technologically with these new sanctions and with China's uh, move toward de-dollarization, but with China not yet having the the new financial infrastructure it needs to be able to be completely dependent independent of the U.S. dollar, it seems that they've made the assessment that they if they're going to attack, they need to do it in the short term. And there is a lot of momentum pushing them in that way. So yes, to answer your question, I think that it's very possible that we could see conventional war between the U.S. and China within the next few years. Well, um, I do think that in general, in the past 30 years since the end of the first Cold War, if you, especially if you look at U.S. military writings and the RAND Corporation reports, there has been a move in general toward hybrid war and other forms of warfare. And, um, you know, there's this popular term in Washington, instead of saying economic war, they love to say economic statecraft. It's very common to see, but it's really economic warfare. And if you look at, um, I don't have the graph right here in front of me, but maybe I, if I can come back later, I'll show it. Um, but 
there I saw a study recently with the application of unilateral sanctions by the United States from uh, the during the first Cold War until today, and it just completely skyrocketed. And especially in the past decade, there's been a, a significant move toward economic warfare. And ironically, you know, there's been a lot of discussion of how the use of sanctions has has backfired and boomerang. There's there's a new book published by a mainstream scholar last year about that, the boomerang effect of sanctions, and how it did fuel accelerate the drive toward de-dollarization and the creation of new financial alternatives. And ironically, that has set the stage for the possibility of more conventional war because the U.S. economy is so deeply intertwined, especially with the Chinese economy, but other economies around the world in this era of neoliberal globalization. Um, it, it's the global economy is still deeply intertwined, but I should point out, I mean, this is a point that I learned from Ha Jun Cheng, so I'm stealing his point, a, a good uh, uh, development economist. He pointed out that, in fact, when World War I happened, it was the, the when the world was the most globalized. The, there's this idea that globalization is new, of course, because neoliberals have tried to monopolize the concept of globalization. There's been globalization for thousands of years, the Silk Road was globalization, but we're in a particular paradigm of neoliberal globalization. Ha Jun Cheng points out that it's not even a matter of technology, that um, in fact, in the lead up to World War I, there was, as a percentage of global GDP, it was a moment of peak uh, global interchange. And that was using uh, you know, what we would consider very unsophisticated technology, like um, cable uh, cables, not even like the use of uh, like non-cabled technology for communications. In order to communicate across countries, they still had cable lines, right? So just because an economy is very globalized doesn't mean that there's not the possibility of world war. He points out that, in fact, the moment of uh, more uh, more uh, um, ec economic sovereignty for countries and less globalization was, in fact, the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the period of decolonization. That was the kind of uh, the, the moment in which it was a low point of global interchange in terms of global uh, connection of the international economy. So, I mean, yeah, obviously the U.S. and the Chinese economies are deeply intertwined, but that didn't prevent World War One either. So, I, I mean, um, it's very hard to say. And other, and your another part of your question about countries that could potentially be involved. I mean, if we look at the response of most of the countries around the world to the proxy war in Ukraine. The vast majority of the world has been either neutral or frankly has sided with Russia. It, there was an article published in Newsweek by two former US diplomats, which is very interesting. They acknowledge that 87% of the global population lives in countries that have been neutral and have refused to impose sanction, sanctions on Russia. It might be different with China. So for instance, Europe is much more anti-Russia than it is anti-China. And if there is a war with China, I mean, Europe would be, if there, if there are politicians who are willing to challenge Washington, it might be a region of the world that might be slightly more neutral, whereas maybe India would be more on board with a war against China, whereas India has much better relations with Russia, and India has adamantly refused to get involved and refused in the proxy war in Ukraine and has maintained close trade relations with Russia. Now, obviously, the U.S. has been pressuring Japan, South Korea, and the Philippines to get involved. But again, I, I mean, the RAND Corporation published a report just over a year ago acknowledging that, that they were having difficulty getting Japan, South Korea, Australia, 
Thailand and the Philippines on board with hosting missile systems. I, I mentioned there has been a change of government and especially in Japan now, there's much more of a hardline anti-China government. But even then, I mean, it would be economic suicide for Japan to join in a war with, with China. So, I mean, it could be, if there is some kind of violent conflict that breaks out, it could be like the proxy war in Ukraine where the vast majority refuse, of the world refuses to get involved and continues trading with China. Ironically, despite this, the, the sanctions on Russia, the IMF has said that Russia's economy is expected to slightly grow this year and is expected to grow even more next year, whereas the British economy is going to be shrinking this year, according to IMF measurements. So, um, you know, Russian trade with I mean, Russian trade with Asia has significantly increased. So even if there is a war, we there might actually still be an increase in trade. In fact, ironically, Chinese trade with the U.S. has increased in the past few years. So we've, we're in this very strange world where the economy is globalized and wars happen and economic interchange incre increases. So I don't think that's going to be an obstacle, unfortunately. So that's it. I want to thank the International Manifesto Group for having me. You all should follow their excellent work. And I'll see you all next time. This is Geopolitical Economy Report. Thanks a lot.